If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Revelations 4, verses 1 to 11. After this, I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once, I was in the Spirit. And there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Ruby. A rainbow that shone like an emerald circled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and pearls of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These were the seven spirits of God. Also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center, around the throne, were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a face like a man. And the fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. Amen. Now, when I was a kid uh, growing up, my parents were both Christians. We were in a church, and um, every so often they would have meetings in their house, or our house, and I was the youngest in our family. And when they would get people in the house for small groups or meetings, whatever it was, I would find pretty much any excuse I could as a young kid to get out of bed, creep downstairs, and try and get involved in whatever was going on. Now, I did that for two main reasons. One was to see if there was any food left over, Okay, just got to find out if there's anything to graze. And the second thing was I just wanted to see if I knew anybody in the room and if there was anybody I could get involved in. If I, if I knew who they were and they knew who I was, I was just a bit nosy, really. And if I managed to get past my parents and actually get into that room, I would tend to find myself in a setting where I didn't really understand what was going on. I didn't necessarily know why they were there. I didn't know what they were going to talk about. I wouldn't, I wouldn't have the maturity to get it all. But even as a little kid, I could kind of pick up the sense of the room. You know, you pick up what the vibe is, what, you know, the kind of sense of the gathering. And um, I don't know if you ever did that as a child or if you have kids who do that. But that's a little bit how I feel when I read a passage like Revelation 4. Because suddenly in Revelation 4, you see this picture and John is seeing this picture, which feels like you're a child being let into the adult world 
And you're like, I don't necessarily understand all the things we've just read or all the symbolism. And if you read all the theologians and all the commentators, they don't necessarily agree on all the things either, by the way. And you get a sense of what does that mean? What does that mean? What does that mean? But what you can get is a sense of the feel of the image of what was going on. You pick up the, the resonance of the room and the vision and what was happening, even though you may not be able to understand everything you're reading in terms of the detail. John, who knew Jesus really well, was a close friend of Jesus, sees Jesus in a completely new way. So it's happening to him. He now has a, he's seeing stuff he has no framework for. And we're told that John sees before him an open door and hears the crowd, hears the voice that speaks like a trumpet saying, come up here. And immediately by the spirit, he sees this extraordinary unfolding vision of creatures and thrones and, and a sea of glass and then and lightning and thunder and four living creatures. And he's trying to describe almost what is indescribable, yeah? Almost which is impossible to capture with words. I don't know if you ever take a photograph of a scene you think is amazing. Well, almost inevitably, whenever you take that photograph, it doesn't really quite do it justice, if you know what I mean. Well, I think he's scrabbling for words to describe this kind of scene he's never seen before, he has no framework for. I when I finished uh, school, I was fortunate enough to go on to university. That was, I was very fortunate to do that. And I did a history degree. And one of the things a history degree teaches you, it's a very useful uh, skill, is it teaches you to skim read. You know what skim reading is? It's basically the ability to read a whole load of pages, not really understand what they're saying, but pick out the things that are important that you can shove in an essay and get a good mark. That's what skim reading is, right? And I once upon a time, in my third year, because I'd got my options in too late, I was a bit of a numpty. I basically got myself into a course on English cathedrals. It's been hugely helpful ever since I studied that. Okay. And, um, and I had to read Barchester Towers. I don't know if you've ever read Barchester Towers. It's six books. It, they're quite long, some of them. And I had to read them all. I skim read them all in a weekend and wrote an essay in one weekend. Right? I did quite well in the essay as well. I have no idea what that story was about. I could not tell you anything about it apart from there's a cathedral. But I skim read and picked out all the things and just extracted bits and pieces. Well, Revelation 4 is not a skim read kind of passage. Yeah? Don't do that. This is a stand and stare kind of passage. Even if we don't understand everything about what we're reading, literally it's there for us to stare at. That's what Jesus is doing with John. John is like staring at it. And that's because there's a very simple but profound, I think, biblical principle, which is this that what we behold affects who we become. What we behold, what we see, affects who we become, the kind of people we become. So that is why at the end of Philippians, Paul writes, you know, whatever is noble, whatever is pure, whatever is right, think on these things, look at these things. Because what you allow in affects who you grow to be. It's inevitable. What we watch affects who we are. We all know that's to be true, right? Isaiah 6, which is quite a kind of, if you know the Bible at all, and if you're new to church, you're going to hear a whole bunch of stuff, you're going to go, I've never heard of that, that's fine. But Isaiah 6 is a very similar passage to Revelation 4, where Isaiah sees an image, he sees a vision of God in thrones, and because he sees something, he's never the same again, because he has beheld something. So we're going to behold and we're going to look. Paul writes the same things, 2 Corinthians 3. And we all with unveiled, unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory. In other words, there's something about contemplating 
considering, simply just looking and waiting for God to reveal who he is to us where we get changed. Now, that's important to us because we live, I would suggest, in a culture which is very activist. In other words, you want to do something, you want to be a different person, you've got to do A, B, C, D, E, right? Now, that's good, and some of those things are very important, but actually, biblically, sometimes change comes by simply beholding and waiting. In other words, allowing him to reveal to us things that we cannot see with our own eyes. And so we're going to stare, really, at this image and this vision, and we're going to extract what we can. Now, just to say, when it comes to the symbolism in these kind of passages, you can't be too definite about what everything means. Different commentators think different things. We don't, we're not really in a place to be, oh, it absolutely means this. The creatures mean this and this. But I'm going to suggest some things to you which are, I think, plausible. But we're not going to be too definitive about what it is. But we're going to see if we can glimpse something in this passage of who God is because what we behold affects who we become. So I'm just going to pray now that as we look at this together, God's going to reveal something to us, to you, about who he is. Amen? Lord Jesus, we thank you that you give us your word, that we know you wrote this. You give us this word to change us and affect us and to draw us to you and to show us what, how things really are. And we ask that by your spirit present in this place, in this room right now, that you would reveal something of yourself to us and that we would be different because we caught a glimpse of you. We ask these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. So John describes a scene which is almost indescribable, and he uses language that is very foreign to us. And the first thing he says is, I see a throne, and the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby, and there's a rainbow that shone like an emerald encircling the throne. It sounds like a full-circled rainbow. I've never seen a full-circled rainbow. I've seen a double rainbow, but never anything like that. And there are 24 thrones seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. Now, there's lots of debate when you read all the commentaries about who are the elders and why are there 24 of them, okay? Some people would say, look, they're angelic beings around the throne. Others would argue, and I would probably lean more this way, that they're people, they're humans, but they're described as elders. Elders are often known to be people who represent other people. They represent people. So there are 24 representatives around the throne. Now, why 24? Well, again, we don't really know, but a suggestion is, if you look at Revelation 21, so another 17 chapters later on, there's a description of the new Jerusalem, the city of God, and we're told that it's described as having 12 gates, and above the gates are inscribed the names of the tribes of Israel, 12 tribes of Israel inscribed above each gate, is each tribe. And we're told, below the foundation of the walls are inscribed the names of the 12 apostles. So you think 12 plus 12 is? Very good. 24. Okay, 24 in Revelation 21. Revelation 4, 24 elders, 24 thrones. Maybe what this is saying to us is around the throne, he is seeing an image of 24 elders, representatives of Christians spanning all the ages. Old and New Testament, all across the saints. Now they're wearing white And they're wearing crowns. Now, Revelation 2 and Revelation 3, you see white robes and you see crowns. And both of them are given to people, Christians, who have 
prevailed, who have lived faithfully, who have kept going, even through persecution, have not given up. And they're given a crown or a white robe. So what you could say is in Revelation 4, we see a scene of 24 elders, people representing humans or angels, representing Christians from across the age, you and me, who prevail through life and get before the Father. That's possibly what that means. It seems plausible. From the throne, we're told, he came, there are flashes of lightning and rumbling and pearls of thunder and a full circled rainbow. Well, we see lightning and thunder and, and that kind of imagery in the Old Testament, particularly on Mount Sinai, Exodus 19, where Moses is given the commandments. We know that as they approach the mountain, God covers it in a cloud and there's thunder and there's lightning and there's a shaking. And interestingly, there's a sound of a trumpet blast. Well, in Revelation 4, there's a voice like a trumpet. So it's all conjuring the sense of God's sovereignty, his faithfulness, his truth, his word. And then we're told that there's a rainbow. Well, what does, who does the rainbow remind us of? No, it's not, not the children's TV program. Noah, absolutely. The promise that God gives to Noah is the sign of a rainbow. I'm never going to flood the earth again. I'm going to be completely faithful and merciful to these people, even though they disobey me. In front of the throne, seven lamps, we're told, are blazing. The seven spirits of God, we're told. And also in front of the throne, there is what looks like a sea of glass clear as crystal. Now again, what does the sea represent? We're not entirely sure. But a couple of thoughts for you. One is that in ancient times, water and sea was seen as something to be scared of. It was often represented as something chaotic. But here, the sea is completely still before the throne. In other words, the sense is that the sovereignty of the throne of God is over everything. Even the elements of the sea bow down and are completely still before him. Certainly, people talk about the fact that in the Old Testament, so where they had a tabernacle, which was a tent, and then they built a temple. In both places, God instructed them to build receptacles of water between the tent of meeting and the altar. And we're told that Moses and Aaron, for example, were not allowed in the tent before God unless they had washed. If they had not washed and they went in, they're going to die in his presence. So maybe the water before the throne is also representative of the need to be cleansed. You cannot approach him unless you are cleansed. And we know that the only way you can be cleansed is through the blood of Jesus. So maybe that's what the sea represents. There in the middle, we're told, are these four remarkable living creatures covered with eyes front and back. The first was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a face like a man. The fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures has six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Well, immediately, if you know your Old Testament, Ezekiel's vision has a very similar creatures. Isaiah's vision in Isaiah 6, there's a seraphim with six wings again, okay, covered with eyes. And, and Isaiah sees them, and the seraphim cover their eyes, and they cover their feet with four of the wings, and they fly with the other two. In other words, they can't even look at God. They're in his presence, but they, they can't even look at him, even though they're angelic. Maybe the creatures represent all the diversity of creation gathered around the throne. And there in the center of it all is the throne. Okay? With someone sitting on it, and one who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Ruby. Now, it's an incredible picture, and we can't, like I said, be too definitive about what each thing represents and means. 
But maybe the most important thing is to try and notice what it's making you feel like. What is, what is, it, what is John trying to conjure in our hearts when he writes this kind of stuff? What does it communicate to us? Well, it communicates surely that there's power, that there's majesty, that there's holiness, that there's glory, that there's mercy, there's something transcendent. And right in the very center of the picture is the throne and the one who sits on the throne and the whole picture if you like culminates with the throne as an extraordinary as everything else is you kind of go well what does the what the creatures what's the sea mean and we kind of get caught up with what all these right in the center it's like everything is pointing no 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 it's all about the throne everything points to the throne everything everything comes from the throne and everything is pointing to the throne in other words everything emanates from and points to the throne. The throne is the source and the center of everything. That's what the picture is trying to tell us. Right in the very middle is the throne. Now, we may not understand all the imagery, but we know about thrones. We may not use this kind of language, but the truth is we all know about thrones because we all build them in our lives. All of us have a certain soul hunger and soul thirst where we want more. We want a life which fulfills and satisfies. It gives us purpose and meaning. We want some kind of fulfillment. And we will look anywhere to try and find it. We'll look in jobs, in careers, in relationships. We'll look for it in hobbies. We'll look for it in sex. You can name it. People will look anywhere. And if we make it about that thing, about my career, for example, if I just get higher up the ladder, then maybe I'll feel fulfilled. Then what happens is we start to build a little throne to that. And we start to sacrifice to that. We start to give money for that. We start to sacrifice people we love to that so we can get that. And we build a throne. We start to bow down. We build little thrones in our lives all the time, all of us. We all worship something or someone. And the question is, who will we worship? And in John's vision, right in the center is the throne. And here we see the only throne you and I were made for. This is the only throne which will satisfy. This is the only throne which will actually deliver what our souls crave and want. And you and I have to come to a point in our lives where we decide which throne are we going to bow down to. Because we're all bowing down to something. All of us. No exceptions. And we have to decide, well, Am I going to keep bowing down to my own things, these little things I keep going after, which never really quite give me what I want? Or am I going to go with this picture where I go right in the center of everything is this throne, where it's everything else orbits around. I'm going to bow to this throne. I'm going to give my life to this one on this throne. And then around the throne, we're told the living creatures never stop saying day and night, holy, holy, Holy. They don't just say it once or just twice. They're like, holy, holy, holy. They're like screaming it and singing it out around the throne. The Almighty who was and is and is to come. It's just the same in Isaiah's vision in Isaiah 6, where around the throne they're singing, holy, holy, holy. Suddenly John is confronted with the fact that God isn't just big and powerful, but he's completely different from. He's completely other than. He is completely pure, completely holy. And in Isaiah's vision, the seraphim can't even look. They've got to, they cover themselves. They're like, I can't even look. They just scream and shout it out. It's holy. 
And when Isaiah sees it, he falls and says, woe to me, I'm a man of unclean lips. He's suddenly aware, just like John sees Jesus and falls down as if dead. It's like he is suddenly aware of who he is not and who he is. You see, when we catch a glimpse, just a little glimpse of his holiness, when we catch it, we suddenly become very aware of how unholy we are. When we get a glimpse of his purity, you suddenly become aware of how impure we are, that I am. That's what happens. See, right at the start of Genesis, God creates men and women and says, I'm going to, let's make them in our own image. And stamps men and women with his very DNA. It's part of the dignity of every person. But so often our issue is that we, in our minds, make God in our image. Don't we? We, we domesticate God. We make him a bigger version of a person, in other words. So we, we shrink God to a vision that somehow we can get our heads around and we make him tame and domesticated. But John suddenly sees this vision. He's like, they're around the throne. They're just screaming, holy, holy. He's completely other than, completely different. He's completely pure. I don't know if you've ever been really scared in your life. I've been, I've been scared a couple, two or three times. One occasion as a kid... This is a bit of a ridiculous story, but we're on a mountain with my family, and they've taken us on this walk in, in this horrible weather. We're the only people out there, which tells you something about my family. And we're on this mountain, on this really steep slope, and it's, we're walking what's called scree. Scree is stuff like slate. It moves when you put your foot on it, so it slides as you stand on it. So it doesn't feel safe. And it's dark, and it's wet, and the wind picks up, and there's nobody else there. And I remember being on this slope thinking... I do not feel safe. Like, I want to get out. I want... You suddenly become aware how vulnerable you are and how small you are and how wild this place is and how not in control you are. And I think when John sees a picture of what God is like and when we catch a glimpse again, we realize this is not a tame picture. I, I, I'm not the center of everything. And then the elders respond. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. And they take their crowns and they put them and lay them before the throne. What we're seeing is the right response of a heart that suddenly catches a glimpse of who God is. Because when you suddenly catch a glimpse of who he is, suddenly you realize, oh, no, no, I need to ascribe who you are. I need to acknowledge who you are and who I am not. Suddenly, I suddenly realize, and this is what's happening to John, this is, it's not all about me. I'm not the center of these things. You're the center. You're the source. You're the reason. I'm only breathing because you allow me to breathe and you catch a glimpse again. And it's like you want to go, I want to get it lower. I need to, get, I need to acknowledge who you are. I don't know if you've ever... I, I've said before in church, friends of mine have been prayed for in ministry times, and sometimes they've experienced God so powerfully they've fallen down. That's never happened to me. I'm okay about it, but it's never happened to me. But there have been occasions when I felt God speak to me, and I've put myself on the floor. Just because I'm suddenly aware that God is speaking to me, and I just, it's like the only response I could find that felt appropriate was I just needed to find a posture which reflected what I felt, which I just needed to lie down. I remember one occasion, like, there was this prophetic word that came in a meeting. It wasn't at me, but it felt like it was definitely to me, if that makes sense, if you've ever had that. 
And I just knew God was speaking to me about something that I needed to do something about. And I felt so aware of it that the only place I could find that felt at all comfortable was I'm going to lie on the floor face down and just wait. That's honestly what I... And I just was there for about 10, 15 minutes. I had this prophetic word. I felt convicted. I lay on the floor. And the only reason I got up was because I was supposed to be playing the piano. And so I was like, you need to get up. <laughs> you got to get up and play. I can't play the piano lying down. But I just wanted to lie down. Because there's something about getting low when you realize who he is. You think, oh, I just need to get down. Because actually, basically, I make myself God so often. I'm like, oh, God, I've got it wrong. I need to acknowledge who you are. I need to ascribe who you are. I need to acknowledge you. I need to acknowledge that you're the source and you're the beginning and you're the center. And I'm only here because of you. I'm only get to be in his place because of you. I'm only got any affections for you because of you. That's the only thing. And you get lower. And that's what the elders do. They bow down and they get down and low because it's a posture that reflects. This is how it is. And then it says they take their crowns off and they put it before him. Well, maybe what that is, I mean, in ancient times, conquered kings would take their crowns and put them at the feet of the victorious king. Maybe it's a sign of surrender or submission. But also, if the crowns stand for a symbol of you having prevailed or me or a saint being faithful, if that's what it stands for, then maybe when they're taking their crowns off, they're saying, even my own personal faithfulness is simply a reflection of your faithfulness towards me. In other words, everything I have comes from you anyway, so I'm laying it down again. I'm just saying, I, I see who you are. I acknowledge who you are. It's an act of surrender and submission and acknowledgement. And then they say, they sing and they say these words, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. There are a number of hymns. As you read through Revelation, there are quite a number of hymns. And the reason there are quite a number of hymns is this is the response of a heart that suddenly gets a glimpse of who he is. Is that we start to acknowledge him and we start to say who he is, we start to ascribe, we start to say, all this comes from you, it's sustained by you, it all exists only because of you. Now sometimes in churches we can, we can do odd things with worship, can't we? I, and I do this, just to say, but we can kind of turn to each other at the end and go, how did you find worship? Did you, did you enjoy worship today? Now I understand that question, right? I understand it. But it's a very fine line from going from that into going, I didn't really get anything out of it today. It was like, we make worship something about us. Now, the great news is, Jesus is very kind to us. When we meet with him, we do receive from him, absolutely. In a sense, he's always the giver, and we're always the receiver. But worship, the motive and the direction of worship, is always about to him. And it comes from a heart that has seen again who he is and who I'm not, and therefore how grateful I am that I get to come anywhere near him. That's where it comes from. It doesn't come from, did you like the guitar? Now, we're human, okay? We're made of flesh as well, so physical things affect us, but basically worship is about ascribing to him who he is. And when we sing words of truth about him, regardless necessarily of how we're feeling, what happens is often your emotions or the spirit of God within you, it's like catches up with the words you're singing. You start to feel the things you're singing, but sometimes you just got to say them and sing them because you, and you start to sing truth almost to yourself. You know, it's true, it's true. I'm a son, I'm a forgiven. He's good. I can trust him. And you start to catch up with the truth you're singing, which is why it's so important we gather together. Because there's something about singing together 
about singing truth about who he is, it allows us to see again who he is. It means our heart catches up with the truth. Well, we start to bow down. We start to acknowledge again. You start to realize how good he is that I even get to be in the room with him. And notice, just really quickly, notice this. It says he's worthy to receive our worship. There is something, about, there's something extraordinary happens. God receives our worship. That's not that he needs our worship. It's not like, you know, if I gave Sylvia 50 pounds. Sorry, Sylvia, I'm not going to do that today. But if I was to give Sylvia 50 pounds, I would be giving her something she doesn't have right now. I'd be adding to her. Right? That's not how worship works. It's not like God is needy. But there's a way in which God responds to our affections for him. He receives. In other words, when we worship, I'm not singing into thin air. Something is happening. That's why it's so important we come together and do these kind of things. Now, as we do that, two amazing things happen that give us confidence, and I'm going to finish with these. Okay? One is this. As we realize, as we see this vision, and as when we worship, we start to see a sense again of who God is, and absolutely what we see in Revelation 4 is it gives us a confidence about a future hope. That what we're seeing here is the rule and reign of God's throne. And one day, we're told, his reign will be fully established on the earth. In other words, every knee will bow. What that means is all the longings in your heart for justice, where, for wrongs to be righted, for pain to come, end, for cancer to be ended. All those things that cause us pain that we feel intuitively are not as they should be. One day, we're told that will end. And all the wrongs will be put right. If you ever notice, all the best stories ever written in the world have a turn in the story where one day all the wrongs are righted. Well, that's because in our hearts we carry this hope. And the word says, no, one day that's going to happen. This throne, that reign is going to be fully established on the earth. That's a future hope. But it's not just about a future hope. It's about a present great reality. See, Revelation was written to people who were having a very tough time. People were dying. They were being persecuted, being martyred. They were wondering what had happened to the promises. When, you know, Jesus, it, it's all kicked off really. But now it's like, what's, what's going on? Everything looks circumstantially like it's petering out and it's not going to work. God's not present. What do you need when you feel circumstantially it looks like a disaster? What you need to know, what you need to sense again is God is still in charge, don't we? That's what we need to carry in our hearts. That I'm not alone. That he hasn't abdicated He's not incapable. He's not uncaring. And that's why John is given this vision of suddenly God on a throne, ruling and reigning, that he's present and that he cares and that he's active. In 2 Kings 6, there's a great story about Elisha and his servant. And they are on the run and they're being hunted by the king of Aram. And the king of Aram gets after them, finds out where they are, and they wake up in the morning and the servant looks out and there's his chariots all around them. And it's like, circumstantially, it's like, we're, we're dead, basically. We're done. There's no way out. We're surrounded. And humanly, I think often we can live like that. It's, in other words, all we, all we look at is what we can see circumstantially. We're affected by, almost com- no, completely affected by what we can humanly see. A few weeks ago, I went to my niece's baptism it was Easter Sunday evening, and the guy preaching in the church did a great job, and he preached about, as you'd expect, the resurrection. Now, I'm going to shock a few of you, 
and because uh, I'm a pastor. That's not supposed to shock you. Hopefully, you know I'm a pastor. But I felt God speak to me in this service about the resurrection because I felt, as I heard this guy preach about it, I felt God say to me, Phil, sometimes you live as if I'm not risen. And I said, is there anybody else out there I can speak to? I'd prefer another voice. And I felt God say, sometimes you live as if I'm not risen and active and victorious. That's not that I don't believe Jesus is risen. I believe Jesus is risen, in case any of you are worried, okay? But I can live with my eyes shrouded and clouded, and I can live with what I can see always just around me. And I felt God say, no, I want you to, I want you to learn to live consciously that I'm active and present and able. That there's someone here that you can't see, in other words. And that's what you see in this story because the, the, the servant comes back to Elisha and goes, what are we going to do? And the prophet Elisha says, don't be afraid. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And then Elisha prays, open his eyes. That's what we're praying, isn't it? God, open my eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the servant's eyes and looked around and saw the hill full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. There is a greater reality that we can't see, in other words. That even circumstantially, when it looks bleak and difficult and hard, which it will at times for all of us, John sees a vision. No, 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 there's a greater reality. God is on a throne. He's ruling and reigning. He's able. He's present. He's caring. He's capable. There is one who promises to fight on our behalf, who is ruling and reigning right now. Now, as we close, some of us today, we've never bowed down to Jesus. We've bowed down to all sorts of other things. You maybe have never even thought about it like that, but that's what you've done. You spent your life doing that. And actually, the challenge of Revelation 4 is that there is a throne that you were made for, but you have to decide if you're going to bow down to him. You have to choose. Not do this and this, but have to go, no, 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 I'm going to give my life to him. I'm going to trust him enough. Some of us today, that's, your, that's our move. But for maybe for many others here today, maybe you've been a Christian for a while, I don't know. What we're going to do just as we worship, we're just going to stare We're going to look again. We're going to take it in. We're going to try and glimpse again. And as we do, we're going to say, you are worthy, Lord, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they were created and have their being. Let's stand together. We're going to, I'm going to pray. Lord Jesus, we want to ask you right now, just... By your Holy Spirit, thank you you say that you're present amongst us. Where two or three are gathered, you're there in our midst. Thank you that we believe you're here right now. We thank you that you can speak to us wherever we are, whatever we're going through, however we've felt this week. You, speak, you can speak to us. Thank you, Lord, that my experience is the, the more I ask you to speak, the more you speak, seemingly, or the more I just hear you. And I just want to pray across this room by your Holy Spirit right now, Breathe on us by your spirit. Let us, God, catch a glimpse of who you are. Again, we pray. And just, Lord, as we sing, I pray, Lord, reveal something again in our hearts. Amen.